This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, Sir Robert Jones recently went all the way to court to sue a critic of a column he wrote a while back and then dumped the case halfway through. Hayden Donnell asks if our law of defamation is an essential protection for reputations or a handy tool for men and women of means to curb their critics. And what's on the radio next summer from next season. Uh, And there are a lot of people at this place of work who are gutted by this. And simply, this appears to be a negotiation between two parties where they're on different planes. And we also look at some of the horrible headlines and awful angles and reports of that shocking tragedy across the ditch this week. But first, just the other side of last Christmas, Winston Peters was telling reporters our news media were essential for a healthy democracy and that they deserved our support in tight times. But this week, the tone's been a bit different. And Winston Peters and his party look to me like they're in deep, deep, deep doggy poo. He's faced trouble before, and just like Houdini, um, the showman Peters has escaped. But this time, um, something is significantly different. That was Duncan Garner on the AM show on three last Tuesday morning. And as he said there, Winston Peters has been in the political poo before, but Duncan Garner reckoned the possibility his party broke the rules over donations made this more serious. At that point, a complaint to the Electoral Commission had been passed to the police, who referred the matter on to the Serious Fraud Office. Winston Peters claimed that as party leader he wasn't involved in the financial side of things, but that cut no ice with the former TV3 political editor. Listen, no one can fart in that party without Peters knowing about it beforehand and almost ordering it. Sounds more like a matter for the serious fart office. Now, soon after that, the serious fraud office told NewsHubbit would be investigating donations to the New Zealand First Foundation, amping up the political reporter's interest in the story. And that was heightened already by what had happened earlier this month to two media reporters who'd reported leaked information about the New Zealand First Foundation's finances. As you've probably heard in the news lately, someone took photos and videos of stuff reporter Matt Chand and RNZ's Guy and Espiner a while back when they were out and about in Tauranga with Lester Gray, a former president of the New Zealand First Party, who's now estranged from it. And a couple of weeks ago, those images ended up on the online blog BFD, which claims to be a successor to the now-defunct Whale Oil, which was, of course, the blog at the heart of the convulsion that became known as Dirty Politics back in 2014. So where did those sneaky snaps of the reporters come from, and why were they on that political blog? Well, that blew up as a story last week, when Magic Talk radio host Peter Williams asked Winston Peters this. Well, there's a photograph of Espiner with um, um, Lester Gray meeting in Tauranga, and then with uh, Matt Matt Shan coming to join them a few minutes later. Yeah, I know. Look, Mr Williams, I know that. We took the photograph. Just just to prove that that's the kind of behaviour going on. Now, the behaviour going on in those photos was nothing more than journalists meeting a possible source, nothing intrinsically dodgy about that. And there was also nothing illegal about posting pictures of reporters and sources together, which happened to have been taken in a public place. But on Checkpoint, Guy Espiner told host Lisa Owen he had no idea he was being surveilled. Are there questions that Mr Peters now has to answer? Oh, look, I think there are undoubtedly questions that media will want to to, to put to Mr Peters and others may have questions as well. Um, Given my role in this and and the position I'm in, I'm going to leave that for others, not because I'm ducking stuff, but I just think it's my job to keep reporting on this. 
And the media did indeed have questions about that for Mr Peters, though he preferred to go on the record instead on Twitter to say that a party supporter had taken the pictures in question and he insisted there was no press surveillance by his party. And he followed up the following day with a tweet claiming that only those in the capital city media bubble would care about this. This is more Wellington bulldust. The media party are outraged because someone, not us, did to them what they do to others all the time. Now, one man's Wellington bulldust, though, can be gold for others inside the Beltway, including the National Party's Paula Bennett, who delivered a soundbite tailor-made for the media. It feels like it's a threat to all of you. Do journalists now have to be concerned that if they write a story against Winston Peters and New Zealand First, that they may be followed, they may be photographed, and their source may end up on a political blog? But those questions from Paula Bennett were certainly on the minds of the media. And on Tuesday's AM show, Winston Peters' coalition colleague Willie Jackson gave Winston Peters the benefit of the doubt that he himself had created like this. The other side of it is politicians get harassed all the time. Yeah, but you are you know. publicly accountable. No, that's true. Based. That's true. No, I'm not defending it. I mean, it's, it was a bit different, but I'm not sure. I don't. I mean, I heard he did take take it, then he denied that he yeah. didn't. So What's true do you believe? Well, a bit different is putting it mildly. Here at Media Watch, the last case we can recall like this was about seven years ago, and it featured a former Labour cabinet minister who formed a talkback double act with Willie Jackson. Uh, Radiolive.co.nz and go to Willie and yeah. JT website. Taking the other story down. <laughs> oh yeah, we're not allowed to talk about the other story that JT's JT's warring with the uh, Fairfax people. Now, back then, John Tamahiri was warring with Fairfax, now known as Stuff, over its stories about his personal business dealings financed with loans from the Waipareta Trust, of which he was chief executive at the time. And John Tamahiri complained at length about investigative reporter Matt Nippet. But you continue down your track, and people understand what you are. You go to radiolive.co.nz, you go to waipareta.com, or you go to um, Watia. Okay, and uh, on all those three websites, is you'll know exactly who Mr. Nippet is because Mr. Nippet has made you absolutely aware of who I am. John Tamahedi wrote statements on those websites accompanied by covert photos of Matt Nippet and his house and the street he lived on in Auckland. Now, Willie Jackson, who was CEO of Radio Watea at that time, wrote an opinion piece for its website in support of, in his words, his mate JT. And Willie Jackson said journalists complaining about one of their own being photographed like that was a case of the pot calling the kettle black. On the 9 to noon programme last Tuesday on RNZ National, former Herald Editor-in-Chief Gavin Ellis said politicians should now condemn this conduct, mainly because it could compromise reporters' rights to operate confidentially. Um, because in a healthy democracy, that ability to maintain sources and for journalists to have open relationships with sources, I think, is, is vitally important. And I'm disappointed in, in the Prime Minister. But the Prime Minister, as we've seen, has been sidestepping questions about this in order to stay on side with her deputy and key coalition colleagues. And ironically, the last senior politician to directly address the media's crucial role in our democracy was this guy. We must speak truth to power. My party's fundamental position always has been and remains that a fourth estate is essential, although sadly the news media is in dire straits. The case for help is clear. The digital revolution has its advantages. We only need to pick up a cell phone to, to see that. Winston Peters shortly before Christmas telling political reporters there why he backed government plans to strengthen public media. Two months later... 
This week, he used his cell phone to brush off reporters' questions about photo surveillance of journalists and dirty politics. I'm not being investigated. Listen up. That's you guys. See ya. Now, in that address to media last December, Winston Peters also said this. I value the, the information being passed on to you with such treasure, I decided to come down and talk to you personally. But this week, he used social media to speak unchallenged on the issues in the news rather than answer reporters' questions directly. On Twitter, he accused RNZ of fake news and then took to Facebook to criticise media coverage in a three-minute message posted for his supporters, which included this claim. This is a political campaign by the media party, is clear. Let me give you another example. Last week, Radio New Zealand's Guy and Espiner wrote a story linking donations to the government's racing policy. It's a serious concern that this item was broadcast on Radio New Zealand. It used stolen information, attempted to link party donations to racing policy and broadcast a shocking smear. It's unfair, unbalanced, inaccurate and deeply biased against my party. Now, more than once, Winston Peters has referred to the media party acting en masse against him, as if reporters were one single political opponent. He singled out specific stories for criticism while refusing to properly address the issues they raise. And if any of those reports are as unfair, unbalanced and inaccurate as he said this past week, well, Winston Peters could test that by complaining to the Broadcasting Standards Authority, which is backed by the law, which he would have helped to pass back in the day. But Winston Peters would have to be a bit more specific in his criticisms than he was in that Facebook video and in his tweets. In the New Zealand Herald, political reporter Claire Trevette said that not once in his video did Winston Peters prove that any of RNZ's stories about him were actually wrong. And he described the implication that RNZ should not be running such stories because it's a state-owned broadcaster as disturbing. Claire Trevett reckoned Winston Peters ran perilously close to the provision in RNZ's legislation which prohibits any minister from seeking to direct its editorial content. But Winston Peters was backed up this week by his New Zealand First colleague MP Shane Jones on News Talk ZB last Wednesday. It's, it's driven by a sense of hysteria coming out of Radio New Zealand. Um, I heard somewhere that you're thinking of leaving Auckland. I, I, I hope you don't leave. For example, this is an election year, and I'd rather hear more from Mike Hoskins and less from Guy and Espiner. I just think the whole issue about the photo has been blown completely out of proportion. But when ZB's Mike Hosking pressed Shane Jones on those photos, Shane Jones said this. The reality is that some member of the public apparently took a video or a photo. They recognised... Uh, the former president of New Zealand First, to suggest that it's some Maxwell Smart uh, conspiracy, I think speaks volumes about these uh, a certain culture within the Radio New Zealand, and uh, I've had enough of wet nursing them, quite frankly, from the public breast. So what happened to speaking truth to power in the service of democracy and that commitment to strengthening public media? Well, Shane Jones was probably just venting there at an outfit that's making life difficult for himself and his leader right now, but hinting that he was in a position and in a mood to mess with the food supply of a public broadcaster is a bit ominous. And next up on Media Watch, Hayden Donnell asks if our law of defamation is an essential protection for reputations or has it become a handy tool for men and women of means to curb their critics. When Sir Robert Jones decided to launch defamation action against the filmmaker Renee Maihi, he wasn't taking a big risk. 
The Wellington property developer opted to take the action after Maihi called him a racist and appealed for him to be stripped of his knighthood over an NBR column he wrote calling for a Māori Gratitude Day. Jones lost his column amid the outcry. With a fortune estimated at more than $1 billion, even the most adverse judgment could barely make a dent in his accounts. For Maihi, the stakes were higher. Her supporters had to put up a Give a Little page to raise money for her legal fees. Jones dropped his case at the Wellington High Court last week, but the disparity in power between him and Maihi has stayed on the minds of commentators who say it reveals flaws in our defamation law. In an interview with Tiao broadcaster Moana Maniapoto, lawyer Moana Jackson said Sir Robert likely took the action because he didn't like being criticised by a young Māori woman. I wouldn't want to impute a motive to Bob Jones, but he has a history of attacking people who respond to his attacks. And often those attacks have been against women and against Māori. So Renee's a young Māori woman, so her temerity in daring to call Bob Jones out I think inevitably brought the response where he suddenly pleads to be the victim of harm. Political commentator Ben Thomas tweeted a similar sentiment in response to the case. Defamation in practice in New Zealand is for the most part a way for rich people who can afford it or vexatious litigants on the margins who have nothing to lose to persecute and harass ordinary people. The Jones versus Maihi case is one of several recent high-profile defamation suits. Colin Craig and Jordan Williams' ongoing defamation battles made headlines, mainly because Craig's former press secretary, Rachel McGregor, was repeatedly summoned to court to testify against her will. Businessman Matthew Blomfield's eventually successful eight-year defamation battle with whale oil publisher Cameron Slater was the subject of the book Whale Oil by Margie Thompson. In a statement to Media Watch, Justice Minister Andrew Little said the book convinced him to look at defamation law reform. Having read the book on Matt Blomfield's defamation case against whale oil by Margie Thompson, I accept the law could well do with a review. However, it will not be in this term of Parliament. But what should Little actually change if Labour succeeds at this year's general election? Wellington lawyer Graham Edgler has launched a campaign to reform defamation law, and he has some ideas on how to fix it. Kia ora, Graham. Welcome to Media Watch. Thank you for having me. Now, you have spoken a lot about defamation law in New Zealand. The law has come into the spotlight again recently with the Bob Jones versus Renee Maihi case. How do you think that that case illustrates some of the problems with defamation law in New Zealand? One of, I think, the big problems of defamation law in New Zealand is that there isn't enough protection of simple opinion. You know, so if you're making a false accusation that someone has done something, that's one thing. But just, I think this person is... In that case, it was racist, or I think this person is an idiot. You know, some of those some of those types of insults you can take defamation claims about. Some of them you can't. And I would have thought it would have been a lot better if you couldn't generally. You know, this person refused or fired me because I'm Maori. Mm. That I could see why you might want defamation for something like that. This person is racist. Um, people are going to make up their own minds and they'll either agree or disagree, but uh, the likelihood that someone is going to materially affect someone else just by stating their opinion in that way, uh, I think is 
not something the law fully recognises. I think the way that you put it in the hero is that if your reputation is significantly harmed by someone calling you a name, then maybe you didn't have that much of a reputation to damage in the first place. Yes, I, I think that's right. And, you know, defamation is supposed to be protecting people's reputations from unjustified harm. And um, the right to a reputation is, is something that is recognised in international law. Um, it's, governments have, have an interest in protecting people's reputations, but um, it should be a reputation that the person actually has, and it should be materially harmed in some way um, if you're ever going to have uh, uh, some law to, to punish or compensate or, or whatever uh, people who do that. And um, I don't think we have the balance right at the moment. I guess the issue here in the Bob Jones versus Renee Maihi case was just the disparity in power between the two. So Bob Jones essentially couldn't lose. He has a billion dollars. If he wins, he wins. If he loses, he still inflicted, I guess, financial peril and incredible stress on his much poorer opponent. Is that one of the problems with defamation law in New Zealand? Defamation law, yes, but uh, civil civil law generally, you know... Um and to be honest, criminal law as well. But it's a lot of lawyers could not afford a lawyer, and uh, that's more true in defamation than in other areas of civil justice, but it's true in a lot of areas of civil justice as well. Uh, I, I don't think this is a problem particular with defamation. It's just uh, when it happens in defamation, uh, it, it seems slightly more unjust because it might have just been someone giving their opinion about someone, and people think they ought to be able to do that in a free society. But I think it's a problem with the law generally, um, but defamation is a particularly expensive area of civil litigation, um, civil litigation being expensive generally. So um, the power disparity, I think, is a problem, but it's uh, perhaps not something that you can fix by changing defamation law. It's uh, a problem, I think, probably with the whole system. Yeah, and I guess in other areas of the system, maybe there are avenues available to defendants. You know, you have legal aid, you know, court-appointed lawyers, that kind of thing. Is, is that sort of stuff available in defamation cases, though? Uh, it can be, yes. Um, you could get, uh, I think, probably technically a legal aid lawyer, um, but that's technically because legal aid pay rates um, tend to be so low that the, the you need, really, if you're going to do a, a good defence or a good... Pr- claim in a defamation case, you need a defamation lawyer. Um, it's quite a specialised area, it can be quite technical, and my strong suspicion is that very few defamation lawyers probably do any legal aid at all um, for defamation or anything else. I mean, just the fact of, e- even if you have a lawyer, um, you know, perhaps one you can afford barely to pay for, or, or even one who you didn't have to pay very much for at all, um, even just the 18 months of of the trial process can be all-consuming even when you have a lawyer and aren't too worried about, you know, paying your own lawyer's legal costs. Um, the, that's that's how the court system is. And for, if you're not used to the court system, it can be highly stressful. Um, and that's just as true in defamation as in any other area. So do you kind of agree with the commentator Ben Thomas who said that defamation in practice in New Zealand is a way for sort of rich people or vexatious litigants to bully people into silence? And is the only way to fix that to just essentially raise the bar to litigation? Raising what you would need to prove to get defa- to, to establish defamation is, I think, the most obvious thing you could do to limit the harm that our defamation law currently does. Uh, it's not relevant to this case in particular, but my strong suspicion is that there are people who have been sexually assaulted 
um, because of our defamation laws, that newspapers or radio or someone would have published credible allegations from a potentially a named person that someone had uh, sexually assaulted them, perhaps in employment or, or some other area, and that they have been scared off of publishing that type of material because of the, the cost of a defamation proceeding, even if they thought they could win. And the fact that this information isn't out there probably means that there may have been other victims. And yeah. so that type of thing, I think, is shows part of it's the cost um, of defending it, potentially even the cost of taking it as a problem, um, because you, people can be seriously affected by defamatory claims. But if you aren't wealthy, you're just going to be affected and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. Well, what you're saying here is where it crosses over into the media-free speech. There's, I, I remember when I was at the Herald, and it was during the time that the Kim.com stories were unfurling, and there was real direction from the editorial leadership to be very careful with Kim.com stories because he was litigious and he'd sued the Herald previously. I think of an example down in the Otago Daily Times currently where Chris Morris, their reporter, wants to report a story but is obviously being held back by fear of defamation. Is this a threat to the media as well? I think it is. And you, the media should be careful before they publish serious allegations about someone. But I don't think they should fear maybe, and I suspect some media organisations do, they might fear if there was a successful claim against them, they might cease to exist. Uh, it could be highly detrimental a successful claim against them, uh, even an unsuccessful claim where you might not get your full costs back. Could be the cost of, you know, a couple of journalists whom you can't employ because you had to spend it on lawyers and, and costs related to the court proceeding. Um, and it perhaps would be better if there were some other ways of dealing with this. Is there a way to fix this that isn't just changing the law to raise the bar for defamation? I think one of the things that the lay lawyers around Radio New Zealand suggested is maybe some sort of tribunal or sort of like a grand jury system where defamation cases are heard before they go to trial to see whether they have credibility. Is that something that's a possibility? Um, it would. I can see it being a possibility. I'm not sure it would make terribly much difference. Um, without some of the other changes. If a claim is meritless, it can be struck out. But uh, even where that's the case, someone will get a strikeout and then they'll appeal the strikeout and the Court of Appeal will say, well, no, you can argue this bit, but not this bit. And so adding an extra step. I mean, one possibility, and I'm going to be honest, I haven't fully thought this through, um, is that we do have something that could deal with defamation type stuff um, where it's online, um, or that would include on the radio, the Harmful Digital Communications Act. Um, has what I think is probably a more simplified procedure uh, and doesn't have a lot of the technicalities around pleading that uh, defamation cases do. But you can make a harmful digital communications complaint, and usually to the district court, if you think uh, someone's digital communication has harmed you. And that can include by the publication of false information. You know, if you had that type of system, that, that could be a possibility. Um, Privacy Act complaints in New Zealand don't start in court. Um, you can have a privacy tort that starts in court, but Privacy Act complaints go to the Human Rights Review Tribunal. Uh, and that is a much simpler and easier process. A, a lot of people in that tribunal have lawyers, but a lot of people don't and can still manage the process reasonably well. There are no fees for the Human Rights Review Tribunal, um, and lawyers' bills tend to be a lot less. A defamation tribunal would be one possibility. The government's considering hate speech laws. You, you think that this is actually something they should consider first? I think defamation law that we currently have in New Zealand 
it is probably the greatest imposition we have on freedom of speech. The way it works, the costs involved, it is what stops people making public statements in the public interest uh, more than hate speech laws are likely to. If your concern is freedom of expression, fighting for defamation law reform is probably a much more important thing you could do. Cool. Thank you very much for joining me, Graham Edgela. No problem. Happy to be here. That was Graham Edgela, a lawyer who blogs as Legal Beagle on publicaddress.net, talking to Hayden Donnell about ways to reform our defamation law and make it fairer. Kia ora, good evening. Our first story tonight needs a warning and may bring up some painful issues for viewers. The former Warriors player who's alleged to have killed his estranged wife and three children has been called a heartless monster by her family. It's alleged Rowan Baxter doused the car in petrol and set it on fire and then stabbed himself. That was how News Hub at Six got underway last Thursday and like many in the media headlining those horrible deaths, they warned people in advance that the coverage could be distressing. But for some, the coverage itself added to that. On News Hub at Six there, Mike McRoberts described Rowan Baxter as a warrior, presuming that the audience would know that meant that he'd been a player for the Auckland-based NRL team. Turned out that Rowan Baxter never played for the senior squad at all, so he was scarcely a household name, even for league fans. And for many of those hearing about this through the media, his chosen career was hardly a key concern anyway. His partner and his children should have been front and centre in the story. In the Brisbane paper The Courier-Mail, columnist Katie Hall put it like this, We cannot reduce a woman like Hannah with a full and complex life to just her marital status. When RNZ published an early online story under the headline Mum, Three Children and Rowan Baxter Die After Car Fire, some pointed out that Hannah, a champion in her own chosen sport of trampolining, incidentally, and three children should be the ones named. RNZ later changed that headline to Hannah Baxter Dies with Three Children Killed in Car Fire, adding the detail that Rowan Baxter died at the scene as well. Now, many people also objected to the fact that early headlines and stories referred to the deaths as if they were some kind of tragic freak accident and not a horrible crime. But until the facts were confirmed by police and witnesses, the media were obliged to be cautious about the cause of the deaths. Car fire murders, though, became a regular headline shorthand once more facts were in. Now, part of the problem also is that journalists now produce so many stories quickly for online audiences, adding the details as they come in from the police, witnesses, the families and social media. But the continuing focus on Rowan Baxter's life, career and his outward appearance as a family man was harder to explain or excuse. RNZ's initial story also noted that Rowan Baxter's brother had played sevens for New Zealand and played on the wing for Bay of Plenty about 20 years ago. The New Zealand Herald had already published a story with that in the headline and as the main angle and said Rowan Baxter had been remembered by some as an impressive athlete who had a cheeky side to him. The clickbait-driven Daily Mail Australia was also singled out across the ditch for its headline, ex-footy star who died in burning car showered his children with love. Analysing coverage for the ABC in Australia, academic Annie Blatchford said she was startled by that and she reckoned that in Australia the story was, like others in the past, framed as an individual's battle with mental health rather than about family violence. And that wasn't helped by the Queensland detective in charge of the case saying this in a press conference. To put it bluntly, uh, there are probably people out there in the community that uh, are deciding 
which side, so to speak, to take in, in, in this investigation. Uh, is this an issue of uh, a woman suffering significant domestic violence and her and her children perishing at the, at the hands of the husband? Or is this uh, an instance of a husband being driven too far uh, by issues that he's suffered? In spite of saying that that wasn't what he or Queensland police actually believed, Detective Inspector Mark Thompson was then kicked off the case. Now, Annie Blatchford said it was difficult to comprehend why the isolated story of a monster provoked to kill continued to play out in the media with the abundance of resources and guidelines available to journalists these days. And in that, she was echoed here by Grant Shimon, a news director at Stuff's Opinion section. He said that all this reminded him of coverage of Milton plumber Daniel Peter Moore, who was convicted of rape in February last year. An Otago Daily Times report on that case ran under the headline Rape in a Public Toilet, Married Father's Descent into Sex Attack, and it opened with the paragraph At 34 years old, married with kids and an unblemished criminal record, Daniel Peter Moore was an average Kiwi bloke. That average Kiwi bloke who snapped and did something out of character narrative can get right in the sea, Grant Shimon wrote at the time. This week, staff journalist Alison Moore argued that media outlets should have focused on Hannah Clark, as she was actually known after separating from her spouse, and her children, Lena, Alia and Trey, instead of memorialising the murders. And while she wanted to know less about the past of Rowan Baxter from our media, she said there might be value in looking hard not at him as a person, but what he did and how common it is. And it's hard to argue with that. And finally on Media Watch this week, last Thursday it was a pretty tough start to a shift on radio sport for the afternoon host Daniel McCarty. Uh, but I have to start with the news you've probably just heard, and I'll reiterate if you're just uh, switching on the old wireless, no matter where you are, great to have your company, that uh, New Zealand Media and Entertainment, NZME's Radio Sport, which is us, has today announced it has chosen not to renew the rights to broadcast live commentary of New Zealand Cricket, domestic season, that's cricket here in New Zealand. That is domestic and international matches played in New Zealand next summer. Bad news there for cricket fans who consider ball-by-ball coverage of cricket around the country an essential soundtrack for the summer. And when Radio Sport broke the news on its Twitter feed just before that, the first follower to respond said this. This has wide-reaching implications for fence painting and car washing. And for sports and the media, she or he could have added. Now, potentially, this means the loss of long-serving cricket commentators on the air like Brian Waddle and ex-star players turned co-commentators like Jeremy Coney and, of course, the people behind the scenes. I'm sure all of you will appreciate that this is significant news, of which many of us are just getting ahead around. Significant news, especially to the station, to our people, and to many of you, uh, the listeners... Uh, And there are a lot of people at this place of work who are gutted by this. And this is also bad news too, presumably, for NZME's Alternative Commentary Collective, which was established back in 2014 to liven up the traditional approach to live coverage by not taking it too seriously. And also bad, personally, for commentator and broadcaster Daniel McCarty, seen by some as a successor to Brian Waddle. And one of those who felt that was radio sport caller Woodsy, who phoned in with this on Thursday. But, hey, I would like to just thank Radio Sport for blooding you to the nation because you are the heir apparent 
to Sir Orno, to Lord Brian, and it's been a real pleasure watching you burst onto the scene. You know, things have changed. You've been broadsided, but, mate, someone with your silky, like, smooth skills, you'll find a new opportunity. On Thursday, NZME's chief editor Shane Curry took to Twitter to say it's sad it's come to this, speaking as a huge cricket lover. And Radio Sport callers phoning in were not happy either. I just want to reiterate what the last caller said. Um, I remember when I was about seven down on the farm with the old man, always listening to the cricket out of the car. And, um, well, we're all going to miss that. We're still listening to you guys at the test match. So, um, yeah, just thank you for everything all you guys have done. And there were plenty more where he came from. Now, cricket is the biggest and most popular summer game in this country. And as Daniel McCarty said on Thursday, it's perfect for radio. And no one else runs a dedicated network for sport on the radio anymore. So why will cricket be run out on air next season as things stand after more than 20 summers worth of it on radio sport? Well, that became a bit clearer when Daniel McCarty went on to read aloud from the statement from his employers NZME. Uh, NZME's head of talk, Jason Wynn Stanley, says Radio Sport has enjoyed being the home of cricket for over 20 years. We treasure our connection with New Zealand cricket fans. We have been in discussions with New Zealand cricket for some time but haven't been able to reach agreement on the rights. NZME's head of talk, Jason Wynn Stanley, said in that statement its cricket coverage had run at a loss, something we've previously been prepared to wear, he said, but we're now taking the opportunity to rethink our offering in the space. And NZME's in-house paper, the New Zealand Herald, put this positive-sounding PR spin on the outcome as well. The move opens up the way for the broadcaster to realign its popular summer programming schedules to a wider audience. Now in business, every setback is a kind of opportunity, but what sport content will pull more people in over the summer days and fill more airtime than coverage of cricket? RNZ Sport said it believed that NZME had been seeking a five-year deal, but New Zealand Cricket felt that that period was too long, given the changing media landscape. But New Zealand Cricket, under the leadership of its chief executive David White, has been changing that landscape itself and taking some risks with the reach and media profile of the sport, and some radio sport callers last Thursday were well aware of that. I think there might be a problem with David White here, um, because I... We've, you know, we've gone from Sky, now we're going to the internet. He seems to be ostracising sort of the country, that, that older generation of people. What do you think? Now, last year, New Zealand Cricket also parted ways with its long-term TV partner Sky and did a deal with Spark Sport, in spite of the setbacks it had encountered, streaming the Rugby World Cup in Japan. Now, under that deal, some of the coverage will also screen free-to-air on TVNZ channels, but not all of it will, and streaming video of a day-long or days-long cricket match could be costly or even impossible for some fans in some parts of the country. And for them, commentary on the radio would have been a fallback at least. NZME also owns the streaming platform iHeartRadio and some radio sport callers this week suggested that a cheaper online deal for rights might be able to be negotiated and it is possible that New Zealand Cricket's playing hardball here with NZME and a shorter term deal for those radio rights could yet be done so watch the space as they say. But one commercial deal NZME did do this season was a sponsorship deal for the comedians at the Alternative Commentary Collective. They signed up with the life and health insurance company Partners Life this season to offer a free funeral planning service to one lucky member. The promotion is called It's Your Funeral Mate. Looks like it could come in handy sooner than they thought. 
Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back talking more about the media with Karen Hay on The Lately Show at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch. And then back again for Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.